Welcome, I'm John Lynch and I'm the host of Feed the Underdog podcast, the show where we interview inspiring and successful individuals who have overcome adversity and beat the odds. Join us if you need inspiration and motivation and stay with us as we lead the pack forward and we deep dive into the secrets of what makes an underdog a top dog. Welcome, folks. Uh, today, who we have is Oreo Spado. This guy really made things happen in Hollywood, and he's got some story coming from where he did in Rome and New York, from humble beginnings, I'd say, to Hollywood, like, you know? <laughs> That's the name of the book, Accidental Gangster, and it's available on Amazon. It's available at my website, www.theaccidentalgangster.com. And it's available in Canada at coastalwest.ca. Cool. So you got all the all the places. You got the plugs in there now. The mob. I mean, we think of the mob. We think of Tony Soprano, Goodfellas, all them guys. And we think, Jesus, sleeping with the fishes and stuff. I mean, is that true? I mean, how did you get into all this? Well, listen, Goodfellas and Casino happen to be written by a very dear friend of mine, Nick Pelleggi. And Nick wrote a blurb for me on the back of my book. I'll read that blurb. For nearly 40 years, Orlando Orishpato was a friend and associate of John Sonny Franchet, underboss of the Colombo organized crime family. His relationship with Sonny brought him to the attention of the FBI and eventually led to his being indicted with Sonny on federal RICO charges and in prison. In The Accidental Gangster, Ori provides the detail of this time and the life and his long battle with the FBI, whose overwhelming resources made it a fight that was impossible to win. Nick Pelleggi, author and screenwriter, Casino Goodfellas. Now, on those two movies that Nick wrote, was the reality of it accurate? Yes. But when it comes to Hollywood making a film, they have to add a lot of of lard in it, as I say. They got to make it exciting and put things that didn't happen, you know, because that's what the people want. As we say in Ireland, they they had to tart it up a bit. Yeah. So... You know, uh, but the story about Henry Hill and Goodfellow, that's a true story, okay? Jack Rosenthal and Tony Spalaccio and Casino, that's a true story. Can we bring us back a bit to when you were younger? I mean, where did you get the idea? I was was brought up in a small town in upstate New York, Rome, New York. It's right in the center. I had a good upbringing. I had a mom, a dad. I had two brothers, three sisters. I'm the only one that turned out this way. Um, my grandfather came over from Calabria, over in Italy, as a made man of the Calabria Mafia. Somehow, I, the one that got involved, and through my life, I met several of very famous people, such as Frank Costello, Russell Buffalino, Carlo Marcello, and several more. But it was Sonny Franchese in New York. He and I were friends for over 40 years, 
right up until his death at the age of 103, a little over a year ago. And then out in California, I've been here over 40 years. I became known as the Hollywood Fixer. I began 1971, I think it was, with Dino De Laurentiis and Ralph Sherpy. We were sitting in the office one day, they had a problem on a film. Uh, actor was giving the director a hard time. And I looked, I said, let me go talk to him, I'll take care of it. And I did. I went over to the movie set, I took the actor in his trailer, sat down with him, and I explained the things. You know, costing a lot of money, the money's going behind budget. You got to listen to the director. He calls the shots. You're the actor. You do the acting. You do what you got to do. The director will do what he's got to do. And we're going to get this film made. I said, we have any problems there? No, sir. Good. Thank you. And it got resolved. And from there, the word went out. And, you know, people started calling me. Agents, studios, lawyers, no matter what. And were, were, you, were you connected at this stage, Ori? What? Were you connected to the mob at this stage? I didn't have to use the mob in it. My presence, the perception of what I look like and the way I talk was sufficient. Back in New York, Sonny and all the other guys used to call me our guy in Hollywood. And you gained a reputation in Hollywood. When did it dawn on you that you were actually the Hollywood fixer? When did you say to yourself, geez, I have some power here, you know? I just told you, it began 1971. And that's when you said to yourself, I can influence things. Yeah. And it went on from there. It just went on. And there's all sorts of problems. You know, actors on drugs, uh, divorce situations, I had to get involved, uh, money situations. Uh, an actor is money being held up uh, at an agency because the producers didn't want to release it. Uh, there's all sorts of little quirky things that come up and that you never hear about and I never discuss. And, you know, uh, some of the people are still alive. Uh, there is one individual in the book that I do mention. I do that for another reason that I won't get into, but uh, that's Naomi Campbell. You, you, you convinced that stalker to kind of sling his hook, didn't you? Yeah, I took care of the stalking situation. What did you say to him, Maury? I, uh, well, I had two guys. I, I instructed two guys. I said, after we found the house, after we found where he lived in, that was the difficult part. I would say. Once I found them, it was easy. All right? When the guy knocked on the door. He opened the door. The guy smashed the door right in, went in, took him, sat him down, Got me on the phone, and then I spoke with him. And would you tell I us? I made him understand he was not to think, not even think about her. If I found out that he even thought about her, the next time you see those two guys there, they won't be so nice. And I didn't say it like I said it a little bit more severe. Okay, a little bit more colorful than that, yeah? It was much more colorful. Okay. But he got the message. And that was the important thing. That's doing good stuff, isn't it? I mean, they, they normally associate the, the mafia with, you know, terrible stuff. And But, like, the mafia, you said to me the other day when we were having a chat that, you know, you did good stuff. You helped people out. You genuinely help people, like you said. Do you know? Look, we have always helped people. And we have a saying that comes, stems from Italy. We're always for the underdog. And what most people don't realize, yeah, 
you know, there are days that we make a big score. We got a lot of cash. Yeah. And, you know, you got the widow who down there or the single mother living down the street, raising her kids. She can't pay her rent, can't put food on table. We go over. We help those people out. We do those things. We do them every day. Um, we're not bad guys. What the bad things that people say or see about us, it's taking care of our own. Yeah. Okay? We were treated worse than any other nationality coming here to the United States. They were hanging us in New Orleans, taking us out the swamp and hanging us because we were Italian. It was horrible. In the city I grew up, the town was divided. We couldn't cross the bridge to go in to the real city. So people don't know this. But we were working, and I even had, you know, people complaining in this country of how bad they got it. But they never had it as bad as the Italians did. We had it the worst. And it upsets me. This is supposed to be America. Now they don't want the Mexicans coming in. You know? Yeah. Uh, and then after they allow the Mexicans, the Mexican here, it'll be somebody else. All right? This used to be the greatest country on earth. The land of the free, Ori. The land of the free. It's all bullshit. You think so? Okay. You, you it's talk- all egotistical. It's all uh, propaganda. You spoke of that in another meeting. I heard you saying uh, you've strong views about the way the country is run. You know, follow the money. You said everything in this country is about money. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A holiday. A holiday is only about money. The sales they're going to have at the store. You go to Europe. I mean, what do you guys do on a holiday? You guys take off, right? Yeah. I know in Germany. I know in France. A holiday. Everything's closed. People are with the families. In the old country, they still have the family life. We have lost that in this country. You've lost values, Ori, you think? Huh? Them old values, you think they're being eroded or something or what? What, What's happened? The values in this country have deteriorated. It's deteriorated because what's on the mind of everybody is money. Now, when I was a child growing up, I had to be home every night for dinner. We had to be all at the dinner table as a family. That is not happening anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's very disappointing. So the family... So what do we have? You know, there's a big discussion now. Why do we have these mass murders that we have all the time? Like in Boulder, Colorado, this guy killed 10 people. Why do we have that? You guys got guns in your country. You don't have these kind of things, do you? Well, no, we're not allowed to carry guns officially. Like, okay. Uh, well, we can have gun licenses, but I think they're sort of vetted a fair bit because of yeah various. I things. know over. Let's take Albania. Okay, they there's an AK-47 in every house there, but they're not going out killing people. Mm. Okay, so what is it? Is it something in the water that we drink in this country? No, it's just these young people, they have nobody. They don't have a mother and father. 
Yeah. Because their mother and father are both working. Mm. And the parent, the, the child asks the parents a question, and the parents probably tell them, go Google it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't have the answers, but, you know, I remember growing up, my mother used to tell me, eat everything. The poor, think about those poor people in Italy. They got nothing. And they had nothing then. But now Italy's a great country, my opinion. I love it there. I've been there. So, you know, it's a political thing in this country. Uh, and, and politics is a very dirty game. The real crooks of this of this country are not people like me. It's the people wearing those suits and dresses in Washington, D.C. Those people are the real crooks. They're robbers, big money. You feel strongly about that, Ori. I mean, you you really are rooting, you really do root for the underdog, even though there's certain connotations with the mafia and mob and, but like we're all human, we, you know, um, but do you know what one question is um, I need to ask you? Why did you associate yourself with the mob? What interested? Like, I mean, you had the, the historical link. Why? I, I didn't hear you. Like being being associated with the mob, the mafia, you had the historical link in your family, one of your family being a made man. Were, did you always have that in the back of your mind? That's what you wanted to be? Or did you hear stories? What influenced you that no, you wanted to be? I began my career as an insurance salesman. And you never. I was, very, I was very successful in legitimate business. And why did you I leave very, that? Why did you leave the insurance? What happened that you made the leave? I got my first indictment because uh, of a guy that was very close to me. He heard about the deal I had with the insurance company. He threatened the insurance company that if they didn't give him my my insurance agency, that they he would turn them in to the state of New York Insurance Department. And thus, it became my first federal indictment where I also lost my insurance license, which was my only ability I had to earn a living. Okay. I was exceptionally good at that. Yeah. And, you know, from there and, you know. So, Ori, like, Ori, when, when that happened, like, is was that where the, the conflict started? That you said, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be on one side now. If you've done that to me, I'm gonna take this side. No, you know, it just happened. You know, slowly I was being groomed by another gentleman, an old, older gentleman, okay. throughout the years. Uh, you know, I was being groomed. I was meeting people. Okay. I was learning about, you know, yeah. the rules uh, of the life and so forth. Yeah, and you know, it just happened. The family, the the you whole. Know, I call it. It was my destiny. Okay, yeah. You know, yeah. people ask me, "Do I regret anything?" Well, you know, regret does no good because if I regret, I'm going to be dwelling on the past, and I think to have a better state of mind, let's think about the good we could do today and make tomorrow a better day. And when you say that, Ari, when you say that. That isn't the way to get out of the responsibility of your life. You genuinely mean that, like. I accept full responsibility for everything I've done in my life. Same here. No what, question about it. What other way is that? I don't blame nobody else for my mistakes. 
And you know, there's people that live their lives without accepting that fact, without being 100% responsible. I mean, people want to get off the hook a lot, but to own your own road, it takes integrity. Hmm? We have a choice. Do we want to do right or do we want to do wrong? Yeah. Okay, we all have those choices. And we, you know, money used to be everything to me. I mean, I used to have, yeah, we were talking about it last night with somebody. I mean, I had a lot of freaking money. I mean, that I was bored. Money does not buy happiness. I was bored. I'd be going out buying suits and sport coats and shoes that I didn't need. It was crazy. And one thing I learned about being in prison was I don't need much. I don't need all those fancy things. Hey, I live good. I live here in Beverly Hills. It's expensive to live here. I only got a few suits in my closet. I try to travel light now, and I concentrate. And like I say in my book, if I can help one young man stay out of a life of crime, then it was well worth it. I have helped several young men. My book is not How to Become a Gangster. My book is Why You Should Not Become a Gangster. It's also about the successes I've had in businesses. So there's a lot to be learned from this book. And if you read the reviews, the reviews on it are excellent. You ended up in in prison. I mean, like, that must have been, what happened? What changed your outlook in life? I mean, tell us about the spirit in the man, Ori, and what changed his outlook. Well, you know, I knew the day would probably eventually come that I'd be up. You know, I would get indicted. I didn't think it was going to happen the way it did. I was the only one on that indictment that was from California. Uh, The FBI and the Los Angeles Police Organized Crime Unit had been after me and dogged me for years. 1997, an FBI agent said to me, when I would not cooperate with them, He said, I will see the day you are chained, shackled, put on con air, and brought to Brooklyn. 1997. In 2008, he made it a reality. 11 years later. So when I tell the young men and young women, we got women who want to go on the grind. You got to remember our law enforcement, they have the time, they have the money, they have the manpower, and they got equipment that you would never believe. You know, you watch a movie and they wire a guy up in a movie and you see him strapping it to his chest. They don't do that no more. They put it inside his wristwatch, they'll put it inside his glass. And you'll never know it's there. No, it's not like it used to be. Things have changed. The FBI can monitor you from anywhere. The satellites that we got, they could stamp a picture. They did. I was in the middle of the desert, and they snapped a picture of me, and you would have thought I was posing for them. You know what I mean? Holy shit, I couldn't believe it. (laughs) 
And there was nothing around but cactus. Was that Nevada yeah. desert? No, where was it? Huh? Was that in Nevada? Where? What? Yeah, we down here in Palm, <laughs> uh, outside of Palm Springs, up in the desert, in the mountain. Yeah. I'll never forget that. That Ser- was a secret service. That was the U.S. Secret Service that took the picture. Wow. And then they forwarded it to the other, uh, uh, we call it the alphabet agencies. You you had your battles, Ori. I mean, the ongoing, the mob always have an ongoing. There's always this, even John Gotti, they were trying to, to infiltrate through John Gotti, through well, trying to get trying, trying to get someone they, to squeal. Trying always trying to get someone to squeal to wear a wire, you know. Always. Yeah. Uh, without informants, they couldn't do it. And with the RICO Act that we have in this country, racketeering influence corrupt organization. With that there, they were able to take down anybody and you could you can it's almost impossible to win. And you're looking at a lot of time. Yeah. So when these people become informants, which majority of them today are. If you look around and see everybody's doing a podcast, and I don't have to name them, the majority of them are all informants. And they could come out and say anything they want. They could even talk. There was one of them. He could talk about the people he murdered. He got, he got away with it. So, Are you, you, know, you know, be. Before the 70s and going back, these people wouldn't be around to be able to do that. All right? Because we used to have a saying, what happens in the shadows stays in the shadows. And that's no longer it. Today, everybody's wearing a wire. My friends back in New York tell me, Ori, there's so many people wearing wire. They're reporting each other. And, you know... They had the ability, when they put a case together, they lie. I mean, in my case, my two predicate acts on the indictment, they had informant that were lying. They said that I did things or gave something to somebody, and they never saw me do it. But they got away with it. And that's how they put a case. Richard Nixon signed that in the law. Yeah, Nixon, yeah. Yeah, yeah Nixon signed that in the law. It's, it's a terrible law. Did the FBI ever ask you to wear a wire? Yeah. And what did you say to them? I warred against them. Well, I didn't wear a wire. I recorded them on the telephone. I had 12 different tapes of them. Tell us about that. What, what was that about? That, that did not go over to a well. That resulted in one agent getting demoted off of that organized crime unit, which is an elite squad to be on, and he got put on the fugitive squad. So... He was a little pissed at me. Huh? When they found out I had those tapes, i never forget the day. What happened? Fred Jimmy Cacci told them. They, me and Jimmy went out to collect some money. Jimmy Cacci was the boss out here, the underboss. And he and I were close friends. And they arrested him because Jimmy was out on bail from another case. So they were able to arrest him on preponderance of evidence. And so when Jimmy had to go for his court hearing... After the hearing, when they were taking him away, the FBI were around him. And the FBI said, Mr. Kachi, you should come work for us. Your friend, Mr. Spado, is. And Jimmy, all cuffed up. He had to know Jimmy. He turns around. He said, no. He says, Spado is not an informant. 
He says, Spado's been taping you guys. And he's got 12 tapes. They shit their pants. They shit their pants. Yeah. Do you still have those tapes? Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I don't recommend anybody doing that. They don't take that too kindly. No, no. So, you know, if you put the fact that 1997, what he said to me, and then 2008 made it a reality. Yeah. It took him 11 years, but he did it. He kept his promise, huh? Yeah. So it's some story. There, there's so much to your story, Ari, honestly. Prison, there's Hollywood, Italy. There's Florida, the, the things they did in Florida, Las Vegas. Uh, yeah, there's a lot to my story. And sometimes I, I sit back and I go, how the fuck did I do all this? <laughs> <laughs> well, you do. Again, you know, I'm 76 years old. You know, well, thank the Lord, I'm still here. You you were incarcerated at 63, am I correct? Right. For three years? Five. Five, five years. Wow. Five years. Jeez. Like that, so late in life. Like you know, you had a good run. In fairness, didn't you? Yeah, I had a good run. Yeah, you had a good run. And coming out of prison, what was your what was your outlook? I mean, all the Hollywood stars, Marilyn Monroe, and all them. Everything in Hollywood changed. Hollywood changes fast. You know, it's like, you know, there's some uh, people discussing doing a TV series about my book and about me. And a lot of people ask me, who, who do you want to play you? I don't even know who the actors are today. I can't even name them. I don't know who these young actors We want somebody 35, 40 years old. And we basically want to be uh, filmed here in Los Angeles, Hollywood in the 90s. And I don't know who the young guys are anymore. I mean, look, I knew the old guys. A few are still alive, but most are dead. Ori, coming out of prison, like, as I say, going back to that again, um, did you want to have another shot at it? Or did you say, I surrender here or... uh, what 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 did you say? You you went you went from an underdog to a top dog. Well, you know, coming out of prison was a wake up call. Uh, the city had changed a lot, as it always does. People change, and I changed. I promised my children I would not go back to prison. That I would not go back to that life. I made that promise to my children because my three children were there. For me, every day I was in prison. They sent me stuff. They put money in my commissary. They made sure I was good inside of prison. And a couple of friends, my friends in London, they, they helped me a little. You know, I got great friends in London. I think the best guys are the guys in London. We got some really good guys there. Um, my best mate was Joey Pyle. Uh, senior, and now his son is the guy over there. His son calls me his second father. I call him my third son. So that's how close I am to these people over there across the pond. Yeah, they're great people. You've got great people in your country, in Ireland. Uh, I like to get over there someday. Uh, you know, one thing I got to say about the Irish. You guys got beautiful women. Yeah, yeah, we do actually. Yeah, yeah. 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 I'm to, very much into women. <laughs> Getting get to that, get to that point, Ori. Like, yeah, well, you must you can read about it in my book. You must, yeah, you must have had the choice of any woman you wanted. In it, yeah, I dated, I dated famous actresses, 
Who did you date? Who did you, you date? Know, I dated a lot of women. Come on, name drop. Come on, give us a Last name. night somebody asked me, how, how many different women do you have in your life? And I tried figuring it out. I said, it's a lot. They said, over a thousand? I said, maybe. <laughs> I mean, there was a, I was having, had a run out here in Hollywood one time. I was having two or three different women a week. Damn how I did it. I don't know. I can see why yeah. I, I can see why you have no regrets too like <laughs> no no seriously um how how did the, all that reflect on on family life Ori? this is a strain on anyone's life i mean even but you know it's interesting because it's all about family be it the mob or family it's family yeah like it's so important that the family aspect is so important you know to you to your life in, my i'm close with my children I talk to each of them every day. My grandchildren, I'm close with them. So I'm blessed. And all my children are successful in their own rights. They all do different things. My son out here, who's my youngest, he's 44. He's in the uh, he's in the marijuana business, which is legal here. The, the legal one, we, we say, yeah. yeah. Huh? The legal marijuana business. It's legal, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, my son in Florida is a swimming pool contractor, very successful. And my daughter is back in Utica, New York. She's the director of, a, they call it the Abraham Home. Uh, it's where it's the last people go before they die. It's the hospice or whatever you call it. Can I ask you something like, even that, I mean, I'm getting the sense, you know, you're lucky to be alive in some respects. Did you ever have any near near escapes with death? You know, you, you, do you feel lucky to be alive? I mean, so many people die when they're when they're running that lifestyle, when they're in that lifestyle. They're either in cars. Yeah. You must have known a lot of people that have died, you know. I know a lot of people that are no longer here. Yeah. A lot of people got shot. Yeah. It happens. Do you reckon you were you lucky? Break the rules, you break the rules, you've got to accept the consequences. Yeah. yeah. That's it. There's rules in everything. Just obey them. We have laws in everything. Once again, I tell all the young folks listening it, obey the laws. Enjoy your family. Your family is the most important thing that you have. Moms and dads, make it a requirement to have your children at the dinner table every night without their cell phones, without their computers, at the dinner, have a conversation. Ask your children, are they encountering any problem? Is there anything you as a mom and dad can do for your children? Where do they need help? How are they doing in school? How do they get along with their friends? And in today's world, you're going to find a lot of them do not have friends because they think their friends are the people, all right, that they converse with on Facebook. Those people are really not your friend. You don't even know them. I knew everybody in my neighborhood growing up. We left our doors unlocked. Nobody robbed from anybody. We didn't have these problems this country's having, having today. And everybody wants you to turn the news on and makes it a complicated thing. 
and they want to blame everybody but the wrong people. Blame the parents. It's the parents who are doing wrong. Forget about that extra money. Spend time with your children. They're the most important thing you have. You gave birth. You brought them into this world. Be responsible to them. Oh, and that's my message. And I want to get that message out there. I totally agree with Jory. I mean, I, I, I feel really strongly about that, about that family thing, too. Um, I've one daughter and and she's. I mean, she's how is it over yeah. in Ireland? Are you guys like us? Well, we are. We're we are strong family orientated, to be honest. But I think there's a lot of conditioning that's come down through the centuries that has to be sorted out. Yet, you know, in a certain right. way, you know, you know. Um, but um, yeah, we would be family orientated, but still, we have those issues of <clears throat> we need to be there. You need to be 100% responsible as a parent, you know, and you need to right. be able to listen to your kids and guide them and always be there for them. Like, you know, be the rock that you should be, you know. I, I totally agree with you, Ari, you know. Like, look, that's coming from an aspect as well, I just want to say, from a family that might be healthy, that's great. The kid has a great uh, chance of getting on and hopefully they would with a good foundation. But there are kids out there, Ari, that, that don't have that, that are living in, a drug infested area they're in gangs they're in crime they're living the life man you know they're thinking and uh yeah you know they they on and, young... and you know where they're gonna end up yeah in prison first of all everything begins in our head and you know i understand a lot of these gang members they don't have parents all right and a lot of their lives they don't have fathers the fathers are in prison or dead or left them left the mother so they don't have nobody to look up to so when they see the kid down the street who's their same age you know but doing well they start looking up to that individual all right and that's the person they take advice and they end up in that game okay and and it's just a matter of time that that game is going to be taken down they're going to go to prison or they're going to die. It's the only choice that they have. So when you are set in life that you got a choice, prison or dying, well, you got to do something to change that. So the first thing I suggest is you got to withdraw. You got to love yourself first. Okay. Love yourself. Get an education or get a trade. But learn something and do something that you love doing. And you start building your life. But do what you love. Do something you love doing. Don't do something because you have to do it. You know? We have so many people who take jobs in this country because that's the only thing they, they could do. But if they take the time to study a craft, or go to college, they'll have something for the rest of their life. And that's how they build their life to become a legitimate citizen of this world. And they never have to look over their shoulder again. And on that there, my friend, John, until the next time, I think this was a great interview. I thank you very much. 
All right, thanks so much. It's, it's been, I could, I could talk to you all day long. Go to Amazon or go to my website, get the book, The Accidental Gangster. And what's the John, website? God bless you, my friend. Thanks, Ari. All Take my care. love and support, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, folks, that's it. We've reached the end of our show and we hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please subscribe to our podcast and our newsletter at www.feedtheunderdog.com and also that same handle is on social media. So, folks, until next time, please stay safe and be positive.